Today, we will discuss how we expect developments in the field of ESG to impact the construction and infrastructure sectors. And in particular, how ESG will be a key factor in the next generation of disputes in these areas. What do we mean by ESG? By ESG, we mean legislation in the field of energy, social and governance, including international soft law instruments such as the UNGP and OECD guidelines. Also, we refer to contractual clauses being incorporated into contracts as a result. My name is Bart Fleure, counsel in the Linklaters office in Amsterdam, focusing on litigation and arbitration. And I will do this podcast together with Maria Mitaeva, counsel in the Linklaters Paris office, specializing in the field of international arbitration and the construction sector in particular. Before we delve into this topic more deeply, Maria, why do you think that it is particularly timely to ask ourselves how ESG developments will affect the construction and infrastructure sectors and disputes in these areas? Yes, thanks, Bart. Uh, well, just last week, the IBA has issued a report on the use of ESG contractual obligations and related disputes. And it noted that there has been a real proliferation of ESG-specific requirements in commercial contracts in the last 10 years which is driven by increasing legislation and regulation in this area and the rise of voluntary standards. And the EU is, of course, a key driving force behind the increased regulation. And if we take the example of the EU's planned Corporate Sustainability Due Diligence Directive, if it is enacted in line with a Commission proposal, it would require in-scope companies to conduct due diligence on human rights abuses and environmental harm and take responsibility for any such violations throughout the global supply chains. And the construction and infrastructure sector is one of the areas that is likely to be significantly affected by ESG requirements being imposed across supply chains, because it typically relies on global supply chains across multiple jurisdictions. And we see that the construction sector is also experiencing very strong growth as a result of the increased focus on sustainability. If we look at the reports recently released by FIDIC and EY, it stated that the massive investment of around $139 trillion in sustainable infrastructure is needed to achieve net zero by 2050. Thank you, Maria. And are we seeing, are we starting to see the increased focus on ESG requirements being transposed into actual construction and other commercial contracts? Yes, the first point to note is that there are many different types of ESG clauses. So they can take the form of due diligence requirements or compliance obligations. They can encompass monitoring or reporting requirements, or they can take the form of warranties and indemnities. And ESG clauses can also specify the consequences that will flow from breach of ESG obligations. So, for example, entry into an agreed remediation process or termination or the payment of damages as a result of breach. And um, it is instructive to look uh, by way of illustration at the model clauses published by several associations in relation to ESG issues. So first, you have the working group of the American Bar Association business law section that has developed model uh, contract clauses to protect workers in international supply chains. And when the ABA model clauses were last updated, the objective was to translate the principles established by soft law instruments, such as the UN guiding principles on business and human rights and um, the OECD guidelines for responsible business conduct, to translate those into contractual obligations that require buyers and suppliers to cooperate in protecting human rights and um, to make both parties responsible for human rights compliance along the supply chain. 
And uh, with respect to environmental issues, uh, the Transfer Lane Project Association in the UK has developed uh, a menu of precedent clauses to address different climate change issues that parties can integrate into their contracts. And I would like to mention two uh, clauses in particular that are of interest. Um, clauses uh, that introduce net zero obligations in FIDIC EPC contracts to begin with. So those are clauses pursuant to which the premium payable to contractors under the agreement will be reduced if they fail to meet certain benchmarks for emissions as confirmed by an independent consultant. And those clauses also contain an option to cascade the obligation where the contractor employs subcontractors. And this is a significant development because environmental laws in EPC contracts are often defined as including statutory instruments only and do not typically capture soft law guidelines and frameworks uh, that do not have statutory force. And the second category of clauses that I would like to mention um, is the net zero target supply chain cascade clauses, uh, the objective of which is to enable businesses to align a net zero target with their supply chains and business partners. And those clauses include provisions for suppliers to set their own net zero target, to develop their own net zero transition plan, to agree on and achieve a proportion of that net zero target under the contract, and introduce the same clause in the supply chain contracts under the agreement in question. And Bart, now, why would companies seek to comply with ESG standards, do you think, if they are not yet fully binding? Yeah, thank you, Maria. That's an important question. Indeed, so why should companies seek to introduce ESG clauses in their contracts, especially if the applicable law does not contain black letter obligations to comply with ESG standards? Um, but increasingly, we see a voluntary compliance with ESG standards as laid down in international soft law instruments, such as the UNGP and the OECD guidelines. So the UNGP stands for the United Nations Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights, which was endorsed in 2011 by the UN Human Rights Council, and they indeed are intended as a non-binding um, uh, instrument on the role of business in promoting and safeguarding human rights when conducting their business. And the same goes for the OECD guidelines, which have been updated this summer. So even though the, these are intended as non-binding standards, the UNGP and also the OECD guidelines have become authoritative sources for ESG standards. First, these instruments have been converted into national law, uh, and this, uh, of course, varies per jurisdiction. So depending on the applicable law, there would be compliance uh, with these requirements in the law. And second, some of the applicable legal systems, such as, for instance, Dutch law, contain open norms, such as an unwritten duty of care, which is then, so to speak, filled in by soft law instruments, such as the UNGP and OECD guidelines. An example is the Netherlands, in which the district court of The Hague has used the UNGP and the OECD guidelines to impose a reduction obligation with respect to carbon emissions on Royal Dutch Shell. Royal Dutch Shell had declared that it wanted to comply with these standards voluntarily, but was held by the district court to comply based on the fact that the UNGP and OECD guidelines constitute generally accepted legal principles, which the district court has then used to interpret the notion of the unwritten duty of care under Dutch tort law. And of course, this is very far far-reaching and an appeal is pending and the decision is heavily criticized, yet similar decisions may follow. Complying voluntarily ahead of the wave has its advantages for businesses. 
because many of the principles laid down in, for instance, the OECD guidelines have been the basis for legis legislative initiatives, such as indeed, as you already mentioned, Maria, the Corporate Sustainability Due Diligence Directive, CSDDD, and the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive, CSRD. And also much national legislation has been based on the OECD guidelines and other soft international soft law instruments. And courts, in turn, arbitral tribunals may be keen to apply them already. The recent IBA report on the use of ESG clauses and related dispute notes that one of the most important factors for choice of dispute resolution mechanisms in order to resolve ESG disputes is confidentiality, notably as a result of reputational concerns of businesses in relation to ESG matters. All of this points to the likelihood that arbitration is likely to be increasingly used to resolve ESG disputes, especially disputes arising out of a breach of contractual obligations. And that brings us to the next question, Maria. Um, so it would be interesting to know how the increased reliance on ESG obligations is likely to shape future disputes in the construction and infrastructure sectors. Yes, thanks, Bart. Well, there is a whole host of scenarios, I would say, that can give rise to disputes in a construction and infrastructure context. First, um, failure to comply with ESG obligations in a construction contract may lead to delay and disruption. So delays in connection with the removal of defaulting subcontractors, the temporary stoppage of works, retenders and ongoing investigations. And this happened on a 1 billion industrial construction project in Belgium in 2022. What happened is that there were allegations of human rights violations against the subcontractor on this project, which led to the temporary stoppage of uh, the project and the suspension of the subcontract. And ultimately, the owner ended up terminating the subcontract and retendering part of the works. And ESG contractual clauses can also allocate the time and cost consequences associated with these disruptions and provide for appropriate remedies. Now, another scenario for disputes is that certain goods may be deemed defective based on contractually agreed criteria for ESG standards. Um, another scenario is, is that given the inclusion of ESG clauses of the type proposed by the Chancery Lane Association, and given that the inclusion of such far-reaching ESG clauses is a relatively new development, disputes are likely to emerge over the interpretation of those clauses and what action is required to comply. So I think one area of uncertainty that will be prone for disputes is what would actually constitute a material breach of an ESG obligation, particularly where the contract provides drastic remedies such as termination in this scenario. Another thought is if you take the example of the net zero model clause proposed for inclusion in FIDIC EPC contracts, under which a contractor would see its premium on the contract price reduced if it fails to meet certain emissions benchmarks, which also need to be confirmed by an independent and appropriately qualified consultant, well, you're likely to face disputes around how such emissions are to be measured and who is an appropriately qualified independent consultant for such purpose, because there is currently a lack of standardization in this area. Changing law clauses are also likely to be relied on and arbitrated in the context of ESG obligations. And finally, because large-scale infrastructure projects are often funded through project finance and international financial institutions are increasingly subject to strict ESG undertakings, there are also likely to be disputes in case of non-compliance there. And then, of course, an important topic is supply chain due diligence, which will impact, which is expected to heavily impact also the 
contractor-subcontractor relations, which can be quite a long chain. So what, Maria, would, uh, would be the issues and challenges to bear in mind in connection with ESG-related obligations in the context of subcontractor and supply chains and construction contracts? And that could be answered both from the perspective of dispute avoidance and in the context of potential arbitrations further down the line. Yes, that's a really interesting question. So large construction projects are often structured through a web of bilateral contracts between different parties. So you have the owner who will typically only have a contract with a contractor and the contractor will in turn have individual contracts with its own subcontractors and so on. And taking the example of a solar project by way of illustration, the owner will enter into an EPC contract with a contractor who will subcontract the procurement of solar panels. So the supplier will source the individual components for the solar panels from sub-suppliers before assembling them and delivering the panel to the contractor. Now, let's imagine that there are cracks in several of the solar cells, which affects performance of the solar plant. So the owner will commence an arbitration against the contractor. And even though the contractor is not itself at fault for the root cause of the defects, it is still contractually liable to the owner. And if the contractor is ordered to pay damages to the owner as a result of the reduced performance due to the cracks, it would typically have to claim its losses from its subcontractors in separate proceedings. And this is because there is usually no direct liability between the owner and the subcontractors and no multi-party contractual relationship in a typical construction contract and subcontract scenario, except where this is expressly provided for under the contract or under the applicable law. So from the contractor's perspective, it is really important to align the rights and obligations under the main contract with the owner on the one hand and the subcontracts on the other hand, because often, and this is, for example, the case under subclause 5.1 of the 2017 fitting contract conditions, it is the contractor that will be directly liable to the owner for any fault, delay or damage that may arise from the works of the subcontractor. And with this background in mind, alignment amongst contracts in the supply chain on ESG matters is very important. So where clauses are incorporated by reference and in the case of back-to-back -back contracts, it is important to carefully consider the, the nature and the scope of rights and obligations that have been passed on so where contractual cascading in the ESG context makes reference to standards, a code of conduct or a policy, it is important to specify what is expected at each tier of the supply chain, where delay and disruption is caused by an issue of non-compliance with an ESG clause, responsibility will be assigned based on the drafting of liability provisions in the chain of contracts. Supply chain due diligence is indeed a key element of both the OECD guidelines and the CSDD proposal. But a critique on the current proposal pending on the CSDD is that unlike the OECD standards, the CSDD does not contain a materiality clause. The OECD guidelines include a risk or materiality-based approach as a key concept, which means that the measures that a company takes to conduct due diligence should be commensurate to the severity and likelihood of the adverse impact on human rights. This idea, however, is missing from the current proposal of CSDD, which raises questions as to how far the ob obligations go, especially with respect to the obligation to ensure supply chain due diligence further down the line. And this is true in particular if the value chain activities span several steps and where the expected risks of human rights and environmental impact are only present 
several steps up or down the contractual ladder and often in other jurisdictions or outside the EU. Also, in view of the uncertainty surrounding this, it is expected that this may lead to multiple disputes about the same issue in case a violation comes to light. For example, a dispute between the contractor and the client, but also being a contract between the contractor and the subcontractor, which may try to pass the claim on to its suppliers. And this could lead to several disputes on what's in effect the same issue. Maria, what are your views on this? Can you, for instance, consolidate such proceedings in arbitration? Yes, the, the level of alignment between contracts forming part of the supply chain will impact on whether a dispute can be heard in a single or consolidated proceeding. The default position is that because there are typically independent vertical bilateral contracts between parties in a construction context, this may lead to the same issues being arbitrated in different sets of proceedings, even if they arise out of the same facts. And so this may lead to inconsistent findings by different arbitral tribunals. And multi-arbitration will, in principle, only be possible if all parties consent to it, either before the dispute arises or after it has arisen. And if a single set of multi-party arbitration is the preferred solution, it is advisable to carefully consider the drafting of a suitable and workable multi-party arbitration clause. So one option is to draft a standalone umbrella arbitration agreement, allowing the consolidation of proceedings that would be signed by all of the parties to the project. Other options may include express provision for joint and consolidation where disputes under different contracts are related or an agreement to be bound by an award issued in relation to another contract. And, and on this, uh, it's interesting to note that the FITIC conditions of subcontract include an optional dispute resolution process in the appendix under which the subcontractor may be bound by the decision of the DAB and the arbitration award under the main contract. And, and multi-party and multi-contract arbitration may also be allowed under the applicable arbitration rules. So to, to sum it up, as ESG obligations increasingly become hard law and the use of ESG contractual clauses and their scope in the context of global supply chains continues to grow, this is likely to be an area ripe for disputes on global construction projects. Thank you very much, Maria. This marks the end of our podcast on the impact of ESG on the construction sector and construction-related dispute. Thank you very much for listening, and please feel free to reach out to Maria, me, or others in the Linklaters team if you have any questions. Have a nice day. Mm -hmm.